Hello and welcome back, listeners, to another interview on Lost Dimensions. Uh, there has been an extended break, which you probably have noticed for the last few months, but I finally finished my first semester at Michigan State, so there's going to be some new content coming up over the break, and I have another uh, interview scheduled with a different professor at the start of January, so there should be some more content coming out. With all that being said, today we have on Professor Elon Werman, who teaches at Arizona State, um, and he teaches constitutional law, um, and he is the author of two books. The book we're mainly going to be talking about today is The Second Founding, which is an introduction to the 14th Amendment, but he also has A Dead Against Living, which is an introduction to originalism, and the uh, book on originalism is actually how I found him because it was the only book uh, at my local library that had a basic uh, introduction to originalism. Um, and that's the type of format um, both of the books follow. So if you're learning and you want to learn about the basic um, concepts and whatnot of either the issues of constitutional interpretation or the 14th Amendment generally, um, both of those books are great. Um, it was great to talk to, and I hope you all enjoy the interview. All right, so my first question is, what is the why, how, and what from the process of creating the book? So why did you do it? How did you do it? And what do you think you ended up with? Yeah, so all three important questions. As for the why, it's actually quite similar to the reason why I wrote my first book, A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. I was a law student at the time, and I was interested in an introduction to originalism, and there wasn't one, believe it or not. I mean, there are good law review articles and some books on particular theories, but no sort of single narrative short introduction. Uh, and so I eventually decided to write one. Well, the same thing was true of the 14th Amendment. There's actually no sort of short, single narrative general introduction to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, and it's in particularly its key provisions in, in the first section. Uh, and so that's what I that's what I wanted to do. Again, good good law review articles uh, and good books, you know, on specific issues. You know, Kurt Lash has a book on the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, Randy Barnett has a great article on anti-slavery constitutionalism and, and things like that. But but again, there was just no single coherent narrative that put the whole picture together, that put the whole picture together. And this uh, sort of goes in dovetails, I think, into the into the how a bit, which is there is an advantage to treating the provisions of section one as a coherent whole, because when you look at what the framers of the 14th Amendment intended to accomplish, right, particularly tackling uh, uh, the problem of the Black Codes, trying to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act, a lot of people think, well, the Equal Protection Clause must do the job. Well, if you look at, again, the whole history of all of these provisions, the protection of the laws was probably a much narrower concept than people realize, insufficient to constitutionalize all of the Civil Rights Act and insufficient to invalidate all of the Black Code. So only putting them all together, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And that's what I tried to do in this book, you know, identify what is due process of law? What is the protection of the laws? What are these privileges and immunities provisions? What were the framers trying to accomplish? And you put this all together in a puzzle and it all falls together in this in this coherent whole. So I think that also answers, you know, the what what I ended up 
Um, and so that's the approach that I ended up with, uh, which is this sort of look at each provision with its antebellum legal history, uh, has a pretty established meaning in that history, and those meanings help solve the problems that we know the framers of the 14th Amendment were confronted. And then you have a short introduction to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Uh, now, of course, a lot of people will disagree about my findings and conclusions, right? So it's, it's not like an introduction in the sense of here's what everybody agrees on. It's introductory, but it's very much sort of my argument about it. Uh, and so that's how I got the book, and that's the product. Gotcha. Um, so on to the next question. The issue of constitutional legitimacy always seems to be at the forefront of discussion on the Constitution. I remember reading Akhil Amar's book, The Constitution Today, and like in, in the introduction, he just continually talks about how it has to live in the current minds and hearts of people today. So how necessary in your mind is it that interpretations of the 14th amendment lead to, quote, in your own words, desirable results in the modern day? Look, this is, again, very, very important question. And I don't want to come off as saying the Constitution has to give us everything that's good and desirable that we want. That's not what makes a Constitution legitimate. And this very much goes back to my first book, where I sort of argue, look, there's a threshold of legitimacy that must be met, right, in, in, in spite of whatever disagreement there is for particulars. If the Constitution to be legitimate had to say exactly what you personally wanted it to say, right? Well, 300 million Americans might have a different view of that, right? So that can, that can be true. But we also know that something must make a Constitution legitimate. So I argue that there's this threshold balancing of self-government and liberty, which can be struck in many ways. But as long as on the whole, the, the Constitution creates this regime of self-government where we can govern ourselves, that also protects a large measure of natural liberty, it's it meets that threshold success, right? That threshold of legitimacy. Having said that, that threshold is an important threshold, right? Without the 14th Amendment, <clears throat> would the original constitution today be understood as meeting that threshold of legitimacy? And I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think that it would, right? In 1789, I think it did. In 1789, the constitution was, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I actually don't know if they had sliced bread in 1789. But the point is, it was a huge advance. It was a huge improvement over what came before. No doubt in my mind that for its time, it was legitimate. But we progressed. And, you know, if we hadn't carried the Constitution along with us and amended it right, to enshrine that progress, would that original Constitution of 1789 or even 1791 be legitimate today? And I don't know what the answer is. I think the answer is probably no. Probably no. So the, so the 14th Amendment is key to helping the old constitution uh, meet that threshold of legitimacy. It's this important improvement upon the original constitution, uh, without which I do think the constitution would suffer a serious legitimacy problem. Now that doesn't mean every modern day result, you know, that we like has to, has to come out a certain way, right? Um, I do think Brown v. Board of Education comes out easily under the anti-discrimination reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Maybe Obergefell uh, is justified the same-sex marriage case, but I don't think it has to. I don't think we have to get to Obergefell for the Constitution to be legitimate, right? Um, so that's just sort of a, a general answer to the role the 14th Amendment plays here in constitutional legitimacy. So one of the main uh, terms in the introduction that you talk about is how you define the provisions as, and you believe that the founders or the 
writers of the 14th Amendment defined other uh, clauses as legal terms of art, so it's not open-ended. Um, do you think this is generally the case with all the provisions in the Constitution, or do you think there is really any provisions to the counter that actually are uh, more open-ended and up to the courts to fill in the meaning, per se? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to convey in this book. There's this view there's this view that the Constitution, uh, especially the 14th Amendment, is written in these broad open-ended provisions. You know, due process of law means whatever is fair. Equal protection of the laws means, ah, uh, you know, whatever we feel is equal today in the modern age, whatever we think are rational discriminations and so on. And so some people argue that they're just these glittering generalities, right? These majestic generalities. And, and you know, modern day judges have to pour their own modern day extra textual values into the Constitution. And I argue, no, they are written in much narrower legal terms of art. It turns out due process of law has a history going back to 1215, right? Or at least 1368 or something, you know, but probably back to 1215. The protection of the laws has a deep legal history in the, the political philosophy, uh, a history in political philosophy, this allegiance for protection theory. Uh, and privileges and immunities provisions uh, existed. These anti-discrimination provisions existed. Uh, at least since the 15th century, probably earlier in international treaties uh, and so on. And it's, I think, pretty clear sort of what they meant. And it turns out, you know, that uh, when we apply this legal meaning uh, to the 14th Amendment, due process of law, the protection of the laws, the privileges and immunities of citizenship, they're not these broad and open-ended provisions, but neither do they consign us to adopting whatever the framers happened to believe about the world in 1868, right, which Justice Scalia mm -hmm. Often, you know, seemed to say, like, you know, Bergefell, he said, um, well, how, you know, they didn't think uh, uh, opposite sex marriage was unconstitutional, you know, in 1868. How can it be unconstitutional today, right? Having only opposite sex marriage. And it's like, well, look, that the, they don't enact into law their expectations. Their expectations are good evidence of what the law is. But then we have a text. We have a text, right? And in my case, the anti discrimination reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, right? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What was a reasonable discrimination, right, in 1873 or 1868, might not be a reasonable discrimination today, right? And the, the perfect example of this, by the way, is women's rights, right? So uh, in 1873, the court decided a case, Bradwell v. Illinois, that said, Myra Bradwell doesn't, doesn't have the right to be a lawyer. Yeah, men could be lawyers, but so what? We, you know, it's famous for this, women's places in the home, you know, you know as, as ordained by the creator and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, even if that was true in 1873, and I don't think it was, but even if it was true in 1873, in 1971 or, or you know, the 1970s, after the whole common law and property regime of, of marriage changes, the legal status of women changes, the 19th Amendment gives them political rights, the highest level of rights, so surely they get civil rights. What was reasonable in 1868 might not be reasonable later, right? So I, I really think that we're not consigned to 1868 and we're not consigned to whatever modern day judges from Harvard and Yale happen to think is good and just, you know, and fair in the world. And so that's, that's why I think this legal meaning uh, is, is accurate. It's also desirable, it's sort of the best approach. And I think lots of provisions in the constitution are actually written in their legal uh, meanings. And I think the public understood that at the time, too. So I think original public meaning and original legal meaning actually cohere most of the time.
Okay, I have to jump here in here on that. Um, when I was watching your talk with Professor Seagal from Halloween, right before Halloween, he said a line that really stuck with me on this type of uh, topic that facts don't change, uh, but values do. So when you're talking about how for women's rights or Brown v. Board, that we can't just be constricted to original expected applications, how do we um, prevent that from being too evolutionary? Because it, it kind of sounds like it when you state it like that. So what's like the restrictions on it? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting dichotomy, but I think it's a false dichotomy, or at least it's not an exhaustive dichotomy in the sense of there are facts, there are values, and then there's meaning. And, and I think the meaning is fixed. I think the meaning doesn't change. And sometimes the meaning requires uh, updated applications because our, the facts change or the values change, right? So, uh, and I don't think that's controversial and I don't think it should be controversial. If the privileges or immunities clause, as I argued, means, right, you can't discriminate uh, in, in the provision of state civil rights by giving one class of citizens more rights than similarly situated citizens. It's basically a general anti-discrimination provision. This doesn't mean that all discriminations are impermissible. 16-year-olds can't drink. 14-year-olds can't drive. But there are reasonable discriminations. There are reasonable discriminations. The question then becomes, what's a reasonable discrimination? Well, in 1868 or 1873, that might be uh, what's reasonable then might be based on their factual assumptions about the world. By the way, are factual assumptions any different than values? I don't know. I don't know. So it'll depend on their factual assumptions about women and their place in the, in the home. Is that, is that a value? Is that a factual assumption? Does it matter? I don't know that it matters. I don't know that that fact value distinction which matters in political philosophy, by the way. I don't know if it matters in terms of applying constitutional meaning. The meaning hasn't changed. Abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. An abridgment means giving one class of citizen more rights than other similarly situated citizens. What are classic abridgments, right? Distinctions on the basis of race, because you, you literally, if, if you're an African-American who's discriminated against, you can't conform. You can't change your skin color, right? The, the, the classic, a, a, the classic statement of what a regulation is, as opposed to a discrimination, is everyone who's willing and able should be able to conform to a regulation. Well, you can't conform if it's based on skin color. Same thing with monopolies. It's why monopolies are actually classic examples of discrimination, of abridgment of rights, because you give one favorite class of citizens a monopoly, more privileges and immunities than another set. Well, the meaning doesn't change, but what we consider a reasonable discrimination, as opposed to an invidious discrimination, might in fact change over time. And none of that me. And, and I don't think it should bother originalists. I mean, we want, we want the Constitution to be applicable to new and changing circumstances and new and changing values. But we can do that without having it totally unconstrained, like the living constitutionalists who have it. Right? And so I, I think it's this meaning, this legal meaning charts a very satisfying middle course between, again, what they thought and expected in 1868 and no limits on modern day values being imposed on the text. Gotcha, and I think this also ties really nicely um, into the sense reference distinction. You uh, talk about it in A Dead Against the Living um, and specifically with Professor Green. Uh, could you just briefly explain what that means and significance of it? Well, that's just sort of highfalutin terminology for the distinction what? Meaning and application really, really is, is, is all it is. It's taken from the philosophy of language uh, and uh, sense is basically the meaning. The meaning doesn't, doesn't change. 
but the referent of the meaning, what's, what it's applied to can, can change. Uh, and so again, the, the standard originalist line is that we're bound by the original meaning. We're not bound by how they expected that meaning would apply in the real world to specific facts. So they could have been wrong about interracial marriage or segregated schools because, based on uh, the reasonableness of the discrimination, based on whether it's a social right versus a civil right. They could have been wrong about those things or the public might have expected it right, to apply in one way, but it turns out that they voted on a different test, right? If, if, if for example, if the Constitution had, had, if the people had voted on specific amendments, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. You can't discriminate on the basis of race in schools. You can't have, and, and they voted one down, or voted the other, but right, it would be a very different picture. But they voted on a general phrase with a specific meaning. And, and that, that whether they, thought in public opinion polls that it would require segregation or not really doesn't matter really doesn't matter because they didn't vote on a segregation amendment they voted on other language and how they thought it would apply to the segregation context informs our understanding of the meaning but it's not dispositive it's not dispositive so it's, it's simply the difference between we're bound by the text versus the particular applications of the text in say 1868 and that's all that that we mean by the sense reference distinction Gotcha. And I think we can tie this into Bostock because you said before that you don't think there's a big difference between textualism and originalism. And reading through between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, um, I, I agree that Alito, when he talks about what would people in 1964 think is not the right approach, but I, have a, I really have an issue with what Gorsuch came out with. Um, and because you have to read statutes in their whole and not just pick it apart word by word and then use that. Uh, what, what would you say on that case specifically and how it relates to these questions? So I don't think there is a difference between textualism and originalism, but I'm not sure what Justice Gorsuch did was textualism. Uh, and, and, and so, I mean, it might have been. I mean, it's a, it's a variant of textualism and, and maybe he was right in that case, though I'm not sure about that. But just so, so taking it away from Gorsuch for a second and the Bostock case on Title VII, right, is, is discrimination on the basis of sex also discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation? What is textualism? I think textualism just means we're bound by the meaning of the text. Well, what is the meaning of the text? Well, it's, I think it's its original meaning. I think it's the meaning that it had to the authors who wrote it. I mean, uh, uh, there, are, there are two ways in which um, the text might mean something different today that's different from the original meaning. One is uh, linguistic drift. The, the meaning of words has just drifted over time. So domestic violence in the constitution means spousal abuse, right? It meant insurrection and so on. Well, who, who says that accidental drifts in language can determine the content of our law? I mean, that would be insane. What theory of political philosophy would justify accidental shifts and the way people use language as changing the content of, of laws determined by documents written in the past. I mean, it, it makes no sense. The other way that it might be different is if uh, modern day judges have interposed themselves and, just, and convinced everyone that they should think it's, it's different. A classic example of this is, you know, the, the right to have assistance of counsel. Under the Sixth Amendment, yeah, it says you have a right to have assistance of counsel. Sounds like the government should have to pay for your lawyer, right? Well, it turns out that that's totally bogus 
No other right in the Constitution is conceived that way. Your right to bear arms. Do you have a right to a government-supplied firearms? It's not positive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The New York Times have a, have a right to a, a taxpayer-subsidized you know, printing press. I mean, it, it would be insane. So we conceive of it differently because judges have, have, have told us it, it can be interpreted differently, but that initial move was sort of unauthorized because the judge's right are supposed to be controlled by it. So contemporary meaning should be the original meaning. Uh, the textual meaning should be the original meaning. If by textualism they mean, oh, we don't look to original intent or the secret intent of the, yeah, well, that's true of, of originalism too. You can look to intent, you can look to purpose, you can look to background principles, expected applications, right, historical practice to inform the meaning of the text. So I think we're all bound by the text. We're all bound by the text and the question, and we can look at all sorts of sources to help us figure out what the text means. So I don't see a difference. Now what Justice Gorsuch did in, in Bostock was what Amy Coney Barrett has called literalism, right? and literalism isn't textualism. And where he sort of parsed every, every single word with dictionary definitions and then put the sentence back together. And it sounds like you know, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation entails discrimination on the basis of sex because you have to know the sex of the person and the sex is a motivating factor in it. Look, not implausible. But as Justice Kavanaugh said in his dissent, when people hear discrimination on the basis of sex, what do they think of? Because you don't like women or because you don't like men, not because you don't like women who also have some other quality or men who have some other quality, because then it's a discrimination on the basis of that other quality, not on the basis of sex. And who's, who's right in that debate? I don't know. My sense is Justice Kavanaugh was probably had the stronger of the argument, but it's a plausible case. It's a plausible case either way, genuinely a hard case. The fact that that judges can disagree on the result in particular cases doesn't mean the method is bogus. <clears throat> People have differences in judgment, differences in capability, and, and that's always going to be true. That's always going to be true. This isn't legal process theory, like Harvard Law School in the 1970s, where you put nine justices in a room and, oh, they over time will surely all come to agree. It just doesn't work like that. The method can be sound, and you might still get, or, and you might all agree on the method, and you might still get different lower order results. Gotcha. Yeah. I, the main reason why I disagree so hardly with uh, Justice Gorsuch is because I think of all the other statutes in the context of education or race where it says the same language, you use the same legal ter term of art to borrow from your book. So I don't know how they're going to parse through all of those. Um, and then the last question I have about the introduction before you get into the individual um, clauses is could you briefly talk about uh, how unique you view the methodology in which you research the book um, versus the normal ways in which authors uh, and scholars view the Reconstruction Amendments? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because there's so much scholarship that focuses on the legislative debates in the 39th Congress that framed the 14th Amendment. You know, you know, a lot of people who support the incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states, which I might be the only originalist under 60 years old who still thinks that that's probably wrong uh, under the best sort of original meaning. Well, they rely on one statement from Senator Howard in, when introducing uh, the 14th Amendment uh, in the Senate and a stray statement from John Bingham from five years later in 1871. <clears throat> well, so that can be unreliable, amenable to manipulation. A lot of scholars do focus on this anti-slavery political history 
and this, this abolitionist constitutional thought. And, and this is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, to the extent they got the Constitution wrong, it's not clear that, that their views ever uh, prevailed among, among the 39th Congress or the public at large. It certainly didn't prevail among courts. Again, if I'm right that these provisions had long antebellum legal histories from 1215, then the fact that some abolitionists made some arguments about slavery and maybe substantive due process, okay, well, who says that courts would have interpreted that way? Who says that the legislators in the 39th Congress would have seen it that way? So, so that's problematic. And another point that I actually make about the abolitionist constitutional thinkers is actually the statements they make are quite consistent with the historical procedural understanding of, of due process. So I think an approach that looks at the long history of these terms as legal terms of art is, is, is the best approach and the least amenable to manipulation and just the most accurate. I think it's just the most accurate. Gotcha. Yeah, it's substantive due process. I think we will go there next because this has been probably the first legal doctrine that I researched so it's actually really nice when I was reading through, I saw the law article by Barnett and Burnick, and that was the like, first time I'd been reading through a book and I'd seen a law article cited, which I'd already read, which was cool. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna push you on this. On page 30, when you're talking about uh, the two antebellum cases, Weinhammer and Dred Scott, and you say, quote, a total prohibition on a type of property previously ordained lawfully is as close to a direct legislative deprivation as one gets. And such a deprivation does violate due process under the traditional procedural understanding. Um, and my question is, how do you parse this from a substance-based formulation of due process? Um, and yeah, that's a question. Yeah, so, so that's a great question. And as you quoted that back to me, I wonder if I could have written that sentence a bit better because what I'm, I'm not sure that Weinemer and Dred Scott were right. I, 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 and I say that they're, they're not right. And when I say that sentence, they come as close to an actual you know, due process violation. I don't mean in a substantive sense. Due process of law basically prohibits a legislature from directly taking away someone's life, liberty, or property. So the legislature can't pass a bill that says, Luke, we don't like you, or you jaywalked yesterday, it wasn't a crime, or even if it was a crime, we're not gonna have you go through a court, and we declare that you're guilty and you have to give up your guns, I don't know, or, or whatever, or your house. That is a violation of due process of law. Due process of law says you can only be deprived of your life, liberty, or property according to pre-existing law. There must be some law you violated. And then the adjudication of that violation has to go through some procedure, like a court proceeding, usually. And if a legislature presumes to pass a bill that takes away your property directly, then, then, then that's a problem. So there's no doubt in my mind that if the legislature had said, we don't like guns, and therefore we take away guns from, from Luke and Elon and Chris and whoever, that would violate due process of law. That's a direct deprivation of property. The question then becomes, can the legislature prohibit an entire category of property prospectively, and, and then say, well, if, you, if you're currently in possession of this property, you, you now have to give it up. You now have to give it up. I think they can do it. I think they can do it because uh, there's no law restricting their ability to restrict liberty. So maybe in the, the last few days you had a liberty to do something, and then all of a sudden that becomes a crime. Well, you can't, you can't do that anymore. That's not a direct legislative deprivation of liberty. That's just they're changing the laws prospectively. Now, if you have property, now the property is illegal because it's alcohol or firearms or slaves, 
the legislature can choose to get rid of it. So I think Weinemer, which says you can't ban alcohol basically as to, pre, as to pr property obtained, alcohol obtained lawfully previously, or Dred Scott, which kind of applied to slavery. I think they were wrong. I think the legislature can pass a law, you know, that says uh, we get that lots of people bought guns, lots of people bought slaves, lots of people bought alcohol, but we think it's wrong. So you have to give them up now. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Dred Scott and Weinemer said to, said to the contrary. My point in the sentence that you quoted, which again, now that you read it to me, it's pretty inartful on my part, was only that it comes very close to what we think of as that direct legislative deprivation of saying, Luke, give up your guns, you know, Elon, give up your property or give up your alcohol or whatever. And, and that was my only point there. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just thinking of it in the context of like drug regulations or whatever. So that's that's why it uh, came to my attention. Okay, uh, key to your book's arguments um, is basically that the 14th Amendment's provisions are read as open-ended delegations currently um, for the court to say what they want. And given this fact, how wise do you think it is to extend applications of these provisions beyond the paradigm issue that was the cause um, for their creations? Because this ties back into the sense reference distinction and uh, the things you were talking about with changing applications. And for me, like the fundamental value of originalism is impartiality um, and keeping the courts out of politics. Um, so do you think it's wise to continue applying them to issues that pop up uh, in the common day? Or do you think we should restrict it more to the basic reasons for why they were created? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And I want to be clear that it's still constrained. Living constitutionalism, I don't think is particularly constrained. The living constitutionalists will say that they're constrained, you know, by this piecemeal common law precedential approach you know, to deciding cases, but ultimately it's not constrained. Like the deviations aren't constrained. But we're still constrained by the meaning of the text, even if it applies to new circumstances, beyond the paradigm circumstances that you described. And to illustrate that, this could have been said and was said in 1873 in the slaughterhouse cases. You don't have to wait a hundred years to ask this question. The paradigm case was the privileges or immunities clause is supposed to abolish the black it was, like, it was about solving the discrimination against African-Americans. Well, now you have a slaughterhouse monopoly given to a group of, of favored, you know, butchers in New Orleans, possibly race-based, by the way, who knows? Like, it's not clear what the race is, and there's some literature on it that says that maybe this was racially motivated. But the people there, the, the justices there said, look, it was primarily about African-American discrimination. It didn't uh, apply uh, to this sort of circumstance. I mean, there's a lot more that they said there. And I would say, look, the text says you can't abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. A privilege of, of, of citizen of the United States is the right to earn a living, to pursue a lawful or a, occupation, to pursue, pursue an ordinary calling. An abridgment literally means that you give one smaller set of rights, you know, to a similarly situated group of persons than to, to another favored sort of, sort of class. And giving a monopoly is exactly an abridgment. It is a classic discrimination. Because if you're not the favored person that gets the monopoly, you can't conform to the regulation in order to have that privilege and to pursue uh, that occupation. So the paradigm cases help us understand the meaning. But why should they be limited to that? At the end of the day, they could have written more detail into whatever provision that they enacted, but they didn't. They, they made them a bit more general than the paradigm case. So I want to be clear, not infinitely general. 
they still have pretty specific antebellum meanings, and, and that's that's the point of the book. Gotcha. Uh, this is going to be my last question. I'm putting limits on originalism, but briefly on page 141, I believe you discuss liquidation um, as a required mechanism uh, for language that can be read as indeterminate. Um, do you think it might be better to just defer to government interpretations of clauses that are indeterminate, or do you think uh, that judges should be more involved uh, in that process? So I think every branch of government has a role in determining the meaning of indeterminate or underdeterminate constitutional provisions. Today, the prevailing philosophy is what you might call judicial supremacy, which is the Supreme Court says it, and that's it, and that's it. And then everyone has to fall into line. You know, the, a, a classic example of this, <clears throat> which um, I think I briefly talk about in this book. Bernie actually. Flores. Yeah, yeah, the city of Bernie case. Uh, before is exactly right. So, so in 19, so before 1990, the law of free exercise of religion had been that generally applicable laws uh, are fine, but you have to give accommodations for sort of legitimate and genuine exercises of, of religious religious practices, unless there's like a very compelling government reason to deny it. And look, this has to be right. This has to be right. If if it's not right, then the government could ban wine, can ban alcohol again. There could be a prohibition on alcohol. And then what, the Catholic Church can't do a key part of its ritual, right? A key part of its free exercise? I mean, it, it would seem preposterous. Um, and so the earlier doctrine for 100 years had been you have to give an accommodation. And in 1990, the Supreme Court changed its mind in a case called Employment Division v. Smith. Generally, absolutely a great mistake. Uh, a lot of people think one of his two. Other people will think Raish, also involving drugs, interestingly, <coughs> Gonzalez v. Raish. Uh, but, but the point is, so they changed the law, said you don't need to give accommodations anymore. And Congress, in response to this, and this was a 5-4 decision in 1990. And then Congress, in the mid-1990s, passes RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, basically saying, no, we disagree, we disagree with this case. We think that the earlier centuries worth of precedent was, was correct. And so they tried through their enforcement power in the 14th Amendment to apply their interpretation. Uh, and reinvigorate that accommodation, you know, requirement, this compelling interest uh, test. And the Supreme Court in City of Bernie said, no, we, we said, we said what we said in uh, Employment Division v. Smith, and everyone else has to fall into line, even though 99% of Congress voted for it. It was unanimous, I think, in the House, and maybe it was like 97 to 3 in the Senate that passed Rufra. It was a Republican Congress, a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, signed it, right? I mean, this, this was... It, at, at least the Supreme Court should have reconsidered its earlier case after being confronted with this competing interpretation from Congress. After all, why should you know one justice in a 5-4 majority get to determine the entire content of our constitutional law as opposed to the four justices in dissent, plus 100 years of precedent, plus a unanimous House of Representatives, a near unanimous Senate, and a president from the other party? I mean, it seems crazy. So this concept of liquidation is just this idea that every branch of government, including the states and the people themselves, have a say over time in helping to figure out what the meaning of these uh, provisions are. Judges have to decide for themselves what the meaning is when they decide cases and controversies. But the point is they should be informed by what the political branches think and do. But I don't think any judges, 
the executive, Congress, no one should get excessive deference for their views. Everyone has a role to play in this process of constitutional interpretation. All right, given the fact that you think these clauses need to be understood in their relation to each other, could you briefly um, explain the connection between due process and protection of the laws, um, which you define as a clause against private, private interference um, of your rights? Yeah, so I think these are intimately connected concepts. And it turns out a lot of people thought that. Uh, the abolitionists, Thomas Jefferson, other people, people thought this in the antebellum period. But due process of law basically means uh, that, that as, as we discussed previously, only the government can take away your life, liberty, or property, and only if there had been established law, and only according to sort of certain procedures. Well, what's the protection of the laws? The protection of the laws is the flip side. It's the protection the government must give you for your rights, so you can enjoy your rights to life, liberty, and property as against private interference. So it's not always the government that comes in and tries to take away your life, liberty, and property. Sometimes it's a neighbor. Sometimes it's a you know, former business partner. Sometimes it's a complete stranger. Lots of other private individuals engage in violence, engage in property crimes, engage in torts. They try to interfere with your enjoyment of your life, liberty, and property. So the protection of the laws is the legal protection the government must give you against private interference with your private rights, with life, liberty, and property. So it primarily means two things. It primarily means the government must protect you against mob rule. It must provide police services. So mob violence was the quintessential violation of the protection of the laws. And then the other is judicial remedies. The court has to provide judicial remedies. Uh, the government has to provide judicial remedies when private parties interfere with your private rights. If someone commits a tort against you, there must be a way to vindicate your rights. And this is what Blackstone and John Marshall said. You know, Blackstone said, the remedial part of the law is what we speak of when we speak of the protection of the laws. He says that in his commentaries. John Marshall, Marbury Madison, says the very first duty of government is to supply the protection of the laws when a citizen receives an injury, right? Remedial protection, vindication. So these are flip sides of, uh, of the same coin and they're intimately connected. And, and one final point on this and then I'll stop. Uh, what should be clear about this is equal protection of the laws. It doesn't mean equal privileges, equal laws, equal benefits. It just means equal protection of the laws. That legal protection for your known rights must be equal. But it doesn't mean your rights themselves your life, your liberty, your property rights must be equal. No, that, that's, that's, that's not what those say. That's probably what the Privileges or Immunities Clause was intended uh, to achieve. Yeah, gotcha. That jumps right into my ne next question. Under uh, your interpretation of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, does it functionally switch places with the Equal Protection Clause as we interpret it now um, for non-discrimination in equality sense? I think that's right. I think whatever, so obviously the Equal Protection of the Laws Clause does some equality work with respect to protection of the laws. But what about the much broader uh, set of, of laws uh, that make distinctions and discriminations? Those would be covered, I think, by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And the reason I think that is because, again, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 declared persons born in the United States to be citizens of the United States and then said such citizens such citizens of the United States are entitled to the same rights, right, equal rights to own property, to contract, to sue, to leasehold, purchase, you know, real estate and personal property and so on, as is enjoyed by white citizens. It was an anti-discrimination provision 
with respect to civil rights under state law. That's why I think the Privileges or Immunities Clause is an anti-discrimination provision that guarantees state civil rights. It means a state maybe can ban guns, but what it can't say is African-Americans can't own guns, but whites can, right? That, that, that's quintessentially what, what it can't uh, do. So that's what I think the, now, so the Privileges or Immunities Clause, a lot of cases can be folded into it from the Equal Protection Clause, but there's a limit. The Privileges or Immunities Clause was understood to refer to civil rights as opposed to political rights. And this comes from the comedy clause of Article 4, where there was a privileges and immunities clause. Basically, if a citizen of Georgia was traveling through Massachusetts, Massachusetts had to give that citizen of Georgia the same rights that Massachusetts gave citizens of Massachusetts. Basically, they weren't to be treated as foreigners, but this applied to civil rights and not political rights. Civil rights exist in the state of nature. Government regulates it, of course, but you, they don't depend on government. Political rights depend on a political community, the right to vote, the right to hold office, the right to sit on a jury, perhaps. So if the citizen of Georgia was traveling through Massachusetts on election day, they didn't have to give him the right you know, to vote uh, on election day. So there would be some differences. Um, Baker against Carr, Reynolds v. Sims, right? Political gerrymandering claims, Ruscio v. Common Cause. I don't think those state a 14th Amendment claim at all. Those are political rights. Maybe there's a problem under the 15th Amendment or the 19th Amendment, right, when it comes to African-American voting or, or women voting and so on. But I don't think the 14th Amendment states a claim for political rights. Uh, so there'd be some limits. There'd be some limits on it. Uh, and I think, but, but otherwise, I think the tiers of scrutiny, modern equal protection doctrine would be very similar to what it would have been under, under the original conception of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. All right, we're going to end it with a question tying back, um, tying back into the contemporary times. Um, recently, during the Barrett hearings, there was a New York Times um, article that was posted about how conservatives and originalists aren't faithfully interpreting the 14th Amendment in original sense. Um, and I want to ask about two uh, specific questions, and then you can take the question generally if you want. First, I want to talk about how in the Reconstruction Acts, um, they set up military districts in the South. So the idea of equal treatment between the states that the court talks about in Shelby County doesn't make sense as an original matter to me. And then I also want to talk about how um, the 14th Amendment, which you said worked to, quote, constitutionalize these various pieces of legislation. Um, and one of these was the second Freedmen's Bureau Act. So how also um, does somebody like Scalia or Thomas justify um, not, not allowing affirmative action under their interpretation of the 14th Amendment? Both great questions, starting with Shelby County. I agree. I actually agree. I think Shelby County was wrongly decided. I don't know, not, not sure on the policy merits, right? Uh, maybe they were right about that. Maybe Congress should have updated the formula. But there is no equal sovereignty clause in the 14th Amendment. The whole, the whole point is Congress can tackle one problem at a time. If Congress wanted to pass the Mississippi Enforcement Act and not worry about Alabama and Georgia, fine, because it, it only has a certain number of, of resources. It can totally do that. There's no equal sovereignty principle. I think the enforcement power does not have to be applied to all states equally. I think maybe the founders expected that there would be an equal sovereignty generally in 1787, uh, but they didn't anticipate the 14th Amendment and the Civil War and all those kinds of things. Uh, and they didn't write an equal sovereignty amendment and we're not bound by things they didn't write. Right? And so I, I agree, I, I, I agree with that. Um, 
Uh, as, for, for, as for affirmative action, uh, affirmative action is a tricky case. It's, it boils down to the question uh, of whether, okay, well, there are, there are many ways you can justify the Freedmen's Bureau in the South. Well, one is they were actually supplying protection of the laws because uh, they, they had courts, they had physical protection, army protection, police protection, court, judicial protection for the freedmen and women in the South that they weren't finding in the state courts. So one is arguably has nothing to do with privileges. It has to do with protection of the laws. And so that wouldn't touch on, on uh, affirmative, uh, affirmative action. One other possibility is that it was actually done under the Republican Guarantee Clause, which I think many of them thought that there weren't Republican governments in the South, so we could create these reconstruction governments. That's sort of another possibility. Um, however, there were some welfare programs, right? There was a welfare program for, quote, destitute colored women in the District of Columbia. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Uh, well, maybe it's because it's remedying actual instances of discrimination or very close uh, uh, to it. But, but one possible answer is that welfare is like a political right and rather than a civil right, because just like you need a political community to hold office, you need a political community to set up a system to vote, you need a political community to tax people and redistribute uh, as welfare. Uh, so the implication though here uh, is that maybe welfare, these public privileges, are not encompassed within the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And that would be probably troubling. I mean, it would, it would suggest that Congress uh, could, uh, or the states could discriminate in the provision of welfare benefits. Uh, if you can give it to destitute colored women, why can't you give it, you know, that's the language of the statute, why can't you give it to destitute white men? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, so, so it's tricky, tricky potentially uh, troubling. So the question for affirmative action is, is public education, including higher education provided by a public university, I guess, uh, is it more like a civil right or more like a political right? And I think the answer is if Brown v. Board is correct because public education is a civil right, then affirmative action has to be wrong-ish in the sense that it's a civil right. It's a civil right and there can't be this, this discrimination. Um, and so is, is education, is public education a civil right or a political right? I think it's a civil right. You, you, nothing stops you in the state of nature from getting an education, just like you could enter into contracts in the state of nature. You could enter into contracts to get an education. You know, with the, the fact that the public takes it over and provides it now as a public service doesn't convert it into a political right. Then the government could take everything over. And, and they, wouldn't they, they could just discriminate. So, so I think um, it's, it's a, a higher education, public education um, generally is a civil right, not a political privilege, not a political right. So you can't discriminate. Now the question of course is, well, is affirmative action actually trying to remedy past discrimination or not? Uh, and then maybe if yes, would it be maybe more constitutional? It, it's certainly possible. Um, but, but, but there are ways to square the evidence from 1868 and the Freedmen Bureau and things like that um, uh, with uh, modern affirmative action doctrine. Gotcha, and I lied, that wasn't the last question. If you could pick one book or law article or just any piece of writing on the reconstruction amendments or Annabelle, Annabelle and Law, um, what would you recommend? Well, so I can't give you one, so aside from my book, of course, yes, of course. I can't give you one scholar 
uh, and uh, that scholar is Christopher Green at Old Miss. Uh, he uh, as is a lot of the, the groundwork for my book was laid by him actually. He blazed the trail on the protection of the laws issues, this privileges or immunities clause being an anti-discrimination provision, John Harrison as well. So Chris Green has a has a book on the privileges or immunities clause, has some articles on that, so I, I would read his. And then of course there's always Eric Foner, who by the way has a book called The Second Founding, uh, uh, different, different subtitle, but his book uh, Reconstruction. America's Unfinished Revolution from the from the set from the sorry 1980s. Uh, I would definitely recommend to get some of that political history. His new book, The Second Founding, I disagree with most of its conclusions actually, uh, and so I recommend that you get both Second Foundings uh, and and compare notes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope listeners you check out his book. I really enjoyed it, um, and you can get it on Amazon or any other venues where it's being sold.